0: Welcome to another episode of In Reality, Lessons from Leaders and Entrepreneurs. Hi, I'm your host, John Rebecki, and I recently had the opportunity to speak with Dr. James Hayward, President and CEO of Applied DNA Sciences, to talk about leadership and creating an organizational culture that inspires innovation and collaboration. Jim's career spans over 30 years and is considered a leading life sciences entrepreneur. In the early 1980s, he co-founded Biocompatibles Limited, was a past director of research at Estee Lauder, and he went on to found the collaborative group that included a number of companies servicing the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries. Divisions of that company were eventually sold to Dow Chemical and BASF. Jim has over 100 patents and publications to his credit and is the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including Entrepreneur of the Year in 2002 from Inc. Magazine and in 2009 from the Long Island Technology Hall of Fame. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It's really a joy to be here. I find it interesting, Jim, that you went to school to study biology and chemistry and not for business, but now you do both. How would you make the transition from scientist to business leader and entrepreneur?
1: It really was not that long before I was drawn to the dark side. <laughs> um, you know, I started out really committed to a scientific career, and I really never have given that up. But I saw the benefits. I was able to directly compare a career in academia with a career in industry and realized that I could bring benefit of that science to people, to humanity, actually much faster
0: by working in industry. Sure. And, and, you know, what you brought together here, and and certainly your working career has been focused on biotechnology and applications research, bringing products to market that are unique and innovative. And while they seem narrowly focused, they seem also to have broad implications.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's one of the joys of Applied DNA Sciences, the company we are running, and which is traded on NASDAQ. And Applied DNA uses a unique means of manufacturing DNA at very large scale. And we believe we're really the only company to do so. It uses a reaction called PCR, or polymerase chain Reaction. So PCR has historically been used in research um, to learn more about specific bits of DNA. We turned it on its head and scaled that process up about a billion fold. And so now we can manufacture, we believe, more DNA than the Earth has ever seen in a single place. And we use that DNA to produce a tag that allows us to illuminate supply chains, especially complex supply chains, and allow us to ensure that what gets delivered to the consumer when applied DNA is involved
0: is both real and safe. So you've taken a biotechnology process and turned that into a way of identifying counterfeit goods. And authenticating products.
1: Yeah, a way of excluding especially counterfeit goods from original supply chains. And you can imagine how important that is in uh, the business of the distribution of legitimate FDA-approved pharmaceutics. Yeah. How capsules, big is the problem, sometimes. Jim,
0: worldwide? I mean,
1: it's, it seems to be an enormous problem. Oh, it's, it is enormous. Uh, and it's not just that uh, the consumer might be exposed to buying something counterfeit, which in the case of a drug can be enormously risky. But it's also that the brand owner or manufacturer has put enormous amounts of money into the marketing and the establishment of that brand, and I got to believe many consumers really aren't aware of the size
0: of the problem, probably.
1: Oh, the size, the uh, international uh, economy estimates it at this year being $1.8 trillion in scale. That's how much business is being taken from legitimate manufacturers, legitimate supply chains.
0: Now, your, your company has been working with some very large retailers, and brand owners relative to authenticating uh, the source materials also that go into their products. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, uh, you know, one that touches home uh, very quickly here on Long Island and really throughout the United States is the issue of genuine versus counterfeit opiate drugs. So, you know, it is typically genuine opiates that addict a patient who has been prescribed them with all good intention to treat pain. Mm -hmm. And perhaps at some point, the treating physician recognizes that a problem is developing and begins to wean the patient off, perhaps not so successfully. And the patient might look to the surrounding community to find a substitute. For that opiate? Well, the counterfeit opiates that come to us often through China are typically um, boosted to give a stronger effect with a drug called fentanyl Mm -hmm. and consequently contaminate and boost the effect of counterfeit opioids and put a patient at enormous risk since two milligrams is a fatal dose in most cases.
0: Wow. And and, how does your company then interact and identify that product? Where where do you get involved in that? So
1: we have technologies that allow us to forensically identify original opiates so that a manufacturer can include our material, which, by the way, we use at a typical load of one part per trillion. So we put a very small DNA tag. It's kind of the equivalent of a molecular barcode Mm. onto the drug itself. And it is a very simple means with just a swab and a little kit. We have one which is driven off a smartphone. With that little kit, you can get an affirmation that this is a genuine drug manufactured by the original manufacturer. If you don't get that signal, I wouldn't take the drug.
0: But in addition, this technology has been used uh, to examine the integrity of brand owner claims for general consumer goods. But, you know, those same principles
1: apply to perhaps the more mundane. Mm. So a few years ago, we looked at retailers all across Long Island to examine the claims that they made for the cotton they used in manufacturing apparel or in manufacturing sheeting and the like. And using genetic tests that allow us to look at the species of cotton, and often it will tell us something about where the cotton came from, we discovered that about 70% of those cottons that we could identify in finished goods did not comply with their label. And uh, that could be an enormous problem. For example, some two years ago, Target had to refund $180 million in purchases of Egyptian cotton sheets, which for the prior three years were
0: not Egyptian. It's fascinating that you've been able to take DNA forensic technology and apply it to product authentication and identifying counterfeit goods. Let's talk about the process of taking an idea and forming a concept that deserves the research funding to turn it into a business. We'll consider a quote from the noted author and innovation researcher, uh, Clayton Christensen, from his book, The Innovator's Solution. Rarely does an idea for a new growth business emerge fully formed from an innovative employee's head. No matter how well articulated a concept or insight might be, it must be shaped and modified, often significantly, as it's fleshed out into a business plan that can win funding. Jim, from this quote there emerges the idea that to be a successful innovation entrepreneur, you need to have a formal development process and a strong team to advance new ideas. Is this similar to your experience? Oh, uh, absolutely. It's really having
1: a strong team, a common and shared vision that the entire team participates in building. Gone are the days of the rock star of the singular scientist who could work miracles at the bench. Now are the days of translational science. And what that requires is leadership and communication. You have to be able to refine an idea. And if it's only yours, it's not going to be the best it can be for sure. And then you have to ensure that that idea is spoken about, hashed and rehashed, and then clearly understood by everyone on the team so that
0: everyone gets their role in execution. Jim, as it relates to ideation and innovation, I'd imagine you need to expect and accept that not every concept works on the first try. And as a leader, you have to anticipate some level of failure that leads to a learning process.
1: You have to be able to embrace failure, empower failure, and teach people how to make a better mistake the next time. If teammates involved in development in particular are fearful of error, they won't get off the mark. They won't start. So um, you don't want to repeat mistakes. That's really bad. That's a waste of time. But making good mistakes that are didactic, that inform... That's great. And no one goes from the starting line to the finish line in a straight line. Yeah, it's a sort of a circuitous process. Yeah, it sure is. And that has to be part of the fun. And if you don't find that rewarding, uh, the notion of making a mistake and then recognizing, figuring out what was the root cause of what went wrong here Mm -hmm. and and then benefiting by it, communicating what happened. And showing people no need to be afraid,
0: we'll fix this the next time. Um, so you know, one of the things that uh, we look at leadership, and it's the ability to influence and guide the actions of others. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your leadership style and how you run a company that is at the leading edge of developing and applying new technologies?
1: I think it's important that everyone on a team... No matter what their level, and we tend to be much more horizontal than vertically stratified. Mm -hmm. You have to have some uh, clear idea of whom you report to uh, in a hierarchy. But still, uh, we penetrate those hierarchies pretty quickly, and no one is afraid to talk to anyone
0: else. So it's all about silo busting, collaborative atmosphere.
1: Yes, we uh, practice as much agile management as we possibly
0: can, and the enemy of agility is is silo based management. So, you know, you you've created this vision for the company. You've got, you've got a great team that you've put together. How did you find the team members? What process did you go through in hiring? Mm, that's perhaps one of the hardest aspects of building a team
1: because you don't always get it right one of the hardest things about being a leader in a corporation is you have to be willing to make change even when it's painful and um, but it's necessary for the betterment of the group and for a more cohesive group or to ensure your projects are getting done on time and not being over promised and under delivered So, um, interviewing is an essential skill and I'm a firm believer in team interviewing and then, uh, accumulating the inputs of everyone who has participated.
0: Yeah. Because your, your, your companies are all about a certain culture and that collaborative nature of what you're trying to build and creating a climate where there's an open environment, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And where you have people who are motivated
0: to get their portion of the job done. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like a really dynamic environment. Was there a, along the way, and, and you, you have a fascinating journey and you've, you've been both from uh, a research side, a scientist, businessman, a business leader. Was there one person in your life along that journey that, that really inspired you? Oh, it's been more than one, that's, that's for
1: sure. And I was really influenced by one particular professor, a young guy named Walter Nagel. He arranged for me to spend a summer at Woods Hole Marine Biology Labs, where Nobel Prize winners come to spend their summer. And they teach courses as just a means of contributing to society. And so I took a few of these courses and at the end of the evening, over a cup of coffee or a beer, a Nobel Prize winner would walk in and offer an opinion over the electron micrographs I'd just taken that day and uh, for uh, an aspiring scientist that left me breathless.
0: You know, one of the things in, in hearing you talk about your experiences in school, it almost seems like that was the genesis of your appreciation to, to creating corporations that that are truly collaborative.
1: You know, even in our little companies, um, the senior scientists who themselves have stellar reputations. Um, if I had to characterize them in a single word, it would be giving. They give of their time. They give of their insight. They don't belittle anyone. They encourage, contribution, and, um, you know, that's just a great,
0: great environment to work in. Are there any lessons that you wish someone had taught you?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I wish I could type. (laughs) Uh, I do the best I can with three fingers
0: on one hand and two on the other, but I'm sure I could be faster (laughs) Well, well, Jim, listen, thanks so much for the insights today. Uh, I think our listeners can really appreciate uh, what it what it means to uh, to lead uh, and to inspire people and to work on the leading edge of technology and and so that bridge that the uh, combination of both leadership and innovation in organizations.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's a great job you do, John.
0: Listening to Dr. Hayward, we come away with some keen insights into creating a culture that embraces the challenges of developing new products and technologies. We heard about the need to formalize the process of taking an idea and experimenting with different approaches. We can see how this can be applied not only to the biotech industry, but also to the development of new consumer products. You know, Dr. Hayward emphasized finding the right members for the team and the importance of the interviewing process and in creating an open environment for dialogue and encouraging contribution from each team member. He described the senior team members as giving, both in their time and insights, and yet remain open to the ideas from others. Thanks again to Dr. Hayward for participating in our podcast series. You've been listening to me and my guests for the past 20 minutes or so, and now I wanna hear from you. What resonated with you the most and how are you gonna apply those tips to your business or career? I wanna know. Feel free to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share your thoughts, comments, and some of your pending questions that you may have about this episode with me on social media by using the hashtag inrealitypodcast, that's all one word, hashtag inrealitypodcast or follow New York Institute of Technology on social media at myNYIT on Facebook and Instagram and at NYIT on Twitter. You can even mail us at inreality, that's all one word, inreality at nyit.edu. And if we get enough questions, I just may answer them on a bonus episode at the end of the season. You are listening to In Reality Lessons from Leaders and Entrepreneurs podcast hosted by me, John Rebecchi. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. Our executive producer and social media strategist is Paulina Lamanier. Our audio editor is Johnny Rebecki. The director of professional enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohen. Our graphic team is Paula Geraldo and Julia Donoghue. Special thanks to Karen Marie Belknap, Jacqueline Compton, and Petra Shandaraga. Until next time.